This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again, Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Welcome back, everybody. This is Sirius XM's Bay Area Ventures. We're broadcasting live from the Wharton San Francisco campus. It's raining outside. We're happy to be inside. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here along with my co-host, Irene Yen. And if you're just joining us, we're switching gears now from the world of um, car rides and care for school children to the world of um, robotics, robotics, food. automated food robotics. So it'll yep. be a great discussion. So for those of us just, just tuning in, our show is about the world of entrepreneurship, startups, and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. If you have a question, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can join the conversation and can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Uh, we're joined now by Deepak Sekar, who brings years of experience, a curious mind, innovative spirit, and get this more than 100 patents to his role as founder wow. and CEO of Chowbotics. And I have to make a, a point here, which is that um, we're all commenting on how the traffic outside the Wharton San Francisco campus building is gridlocked right now. There's, there's rain on the road, everybody's panicking, and you can't go anywhere. Right. So we're always, we always are a little bit in awe of our guests who somehow managed to find their way here on time. So okay. we're, we're happy to welcome uh, Deepak who's the CEO and co-founder of um, Chowbotics. Welcome. Thank you. So maybe to launch, uh, we absolutely have to start with, first of all, what is Chowbotics? We'll do a short caption on that. And then I want to dive back in and find out, you know, what brought you from the world of patents and patent filings to the world of automated food delivery. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'd be glad to tell you more. Chowbotics builds robots which make food automatically. Uh, our first product is Sally, the salad-making robot. You walk up to Sally, and you can customize your salad the way you want. You choose your options. You decide you want a 300-calorie salad, for example, and Sally's going to make that for you 24-7. And that's, that's amazing, I, I believe. Yes. yes, please. That is right. <laughs> right. Yes, please. <laughs> so uh, I was... Uh, I got into this field uh, in a pretty interesting way. Uh, I used to work in a semiconductor company called Rambis. Oh, for sure. And I'm an inventor by background. Mm -hmm. And I was making my food one evening, and I started thinking about how... At 11 o'clock at night. You're like, I don't want to do this myself. From your cubicle (laughs) at Rambis, yeah. And uh, when I was making my food, I started asking myself, uh, surely I don't need to spend an hour and a half of my time doing this. Uh, Surely this can be automated. We've been automatically washing our clothes for the last 30 years. So many things automated right now. And I figured uh, we should be able to automatically make our food. So I started thinking about it uh, and uh, I started building a robot, which automatically made Indian food. That's the kind of food my wife and I eat at home. Mm -hmm. So uh, I teamed up with one of my old high school classmates. We built this Indian food-making robot. That's awesome. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, I could... (laughs) Uh, type in what I wanted uh, on my uh, user interface and then go watch TV. And the robot would automatically add all the ingredients in. It would automatically stir fry everything. And it would make my curries while I had fun uh, watching TV. My wife wasn't very happy with that because she was (laughs) making food the old-fashioned way. Right. So you could uh, do mild, medium, or spicy also? Yep. I have to say, I mean, there's some people, not me, but there's some people who actually like making food, mm-hmm. whereas I'm, I'm definitely in deep oh, I court. Me, yeah. How yeah. did you think of the name? What about Sa- Sally, the name? Who's Sally? Yeah, so the way Sally was came up mm-hmm. was I was going around showing off my Indian food robot to a bunch of people. I met this guy who owned 15 McDonald's stores, and he said, uh, instead of building an Indian food robot for your home, why don't you build a salad-making robot for my restaurant? And his rationale was that... Uh, In restaurants, he was finding it very hard to get uh, labor, Mm -hmm. uh, and the minimum wage was going up as well. And he figured uh, a salad-making robot could be very useful to him. And that's how Sally the salad robot was born, uh, because Sally sounds like (laughs) salad. Got it. Of course. So i got to ask, the the product itself, so when I think of robots, I think of, you know, Automo- automotive factories where they're they're assembling cars and you have these big arms moving around right. based on a c- very sophisticated computer programs and so forth. 
maybe you can physically describe what is what is the Chowbotic product? What what does it look like? So the Chowbotic's product looks a lot less scary than the robots you see in movies, uh, which have tentacles and right. which uh, Spider-Man fights with. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or aliens, yeah, fights with. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it turns out uh, if you want to make a robot uh, for making food, you want it to have as little space as possible because restaurants don't have much space in the kitchen. You also want it to cost as little as possible because restaurants don't make much money. And so the simplest type of robot you can make uh, uh, for making salads actually looks like a box. <laughs> and inside the box... Like a vending machine? Yeah. Yeah, you, okay. You could think of is it, it that That way. size about the size of a refrigerator? Yeah. Sally is around 30 inches by 30 inches. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and it looks like a refrigerator. It's got glass windows. But inside it, you've got a whole bunch of robotics in there. And the reason why you have the robotics... Like moving parts. You have a lot of moving parts over there because you got 22 different types of ingredients inside a sally. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. You need a whole <coughs> bunch of technology to dispense controlled amounts of all these ingredients. Uh, and that's where a lot of uh, innovation and IP came from as well. Uh, uh, accurately measuring uh, quantities of all these ingredients and dispensing them into a bowl. So I have this conception of a like a metal arm that reaches down into a a bowl of lettuce and pinches them together and then withdraws and drops it over into a salad bowl. As it calculates the calories. <laughs> is, is that right? Is it more sophisticated than that? It's actually simpler than that. Okay. Uh, I, one of the things I learned very early on is that you need to be very, very simple to really make a product work. Uh, and it dates back from my PhD days. Uh, uh, I was doing my PhD at Georgia Tech. And in, I, in what? Uh, in electronics engineering. See, that that's an obvious jump from electronics engineering into automated food delivery. Right. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and I had this habit of uh, overcomplicating things. And my PhD advisor used to try to teach me to make things very simple. And, and he knew uh, I don't normally listen to him. I, I would listen <laughs> to him only if he put it in an interesting way. So what he told me was this. Uh, he said he was uh, four rooms away from Bill Shockley, the guy who invented the transistor yep. uh, at Stanford. He used to teach in Stanford before. Uh, and he said uh, Shockley had this theory, uh, which he called tri-simplest cases. And uh, he believed that if you keep things really, really simple... That's the best way to make something work. Mm-hmm. And my PhD advisor Sounds right. He, Sounds right, yeah. And my PhD advisor knew if he quoted Shockley's name to me, I'd listen you'd a listen, lot more. You'd listen, right? <laughs> Not him, but you'd listen to Shockley. <laughs> and uh, so I, I've believed ever since then that uh, you got to keep things very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way we do it with Sally is we've actually got a paddle wheel and things dispense down from the paddle wheel. And we've got a weight sensor below the salad bowl which measures oh. how much is dispensed, and it keeps giving feedback to the dispensing mechanism. Mm. So when it knows it's got just the right amount of ingredient, the dispensing mechanism stops. Right. So it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, you don't need complex robotic arms for this, mm-hmm. but you still need a fair bit of robotics for uh, sensing how much weight is being dispensed and giving feedback to the dispensing apparatus. And the dispensers also have, because one of the things that's unique about Sally is the whole caloric measurement in addition to the quantity. Basically, that's driving it. So they're pre-programmed. So you have like the lettuce dispenser, for example, and you know... X number of pounds or ounces equals this number of calories. Is that right? There's a readout on caloric output. Yeah, so you can control exactly what calories you get. So if you're Mm -hmm. on a meal plan, it works just great. One of the great things about Sally, I believe, is it's a lot more hygienic than a salad bar. Yeah, uh, Because in a typical salad bar, you've got hundreds of people, often with dirty hands, touching the spoons and the food. And... uh, with Sally, the end customer does not touch the food or the spoon, so it's a lot more hygienic. Mm. The other benefit of Sally we've found is that robots don't need to sleep. <laughs> so they're <laughs> available 24-7. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, we find that's very helpful. In, in college campuses, we find that's helpful in offices. We find that's helpful in hospitals as well. So we're, d- we're definitely not at the moment, but we're going to jump into right. supply chain management and wonder how you supply these machines. But I want to come back to you, Deepak, which is, you know, you're working at all these, I mean, these, you know, 
tech companies. You're making semiconductor chips. You're working for Rambus, and you work for I think um, Sandisk. Sandisk was another one. I mean, you've got and you've got a PhD in computer science, and and uh, it's like it's not an obvious jump from semiconductors to salads. And I'm trying to. I mean, I understand there's a, a, a light bulb that went on back when you were working and getting your PhD, but, you know, it's one thing to say, geez, I wish I could get that salad faster. But it's another thing basically to, you know, cut your entire professional training loose in the service of doing something like a, a startup company. I mean, what's wrong with you? Uh, and I had a lot of people tell me that, uh, <laughs> ranging from my parents to my wife to <laughs> all my friends, uh, and uh, I've never been limited by what I've done in the past. Uh, even uh, even during my PhD, I'd worked on microprocessors. Uh, and my first job was in something very different. Uh, and even with uh, uh, Sally and salad making robots, I didn't have too much uh, expertise in that field. But I knew I could. No kidding. <laughs> but I knew I could work harder than anyone else, and I knew I could pick up those skills. It took me uh, nine months of working 20-hour days. Mm. And at wow. the end of those nine or ten months, when I had my first prototype, uh, I knew a lot about that topic. Uh, and it, it's just been a learning experience all through. I, I still learn so much every day. And the thing I learn just keeps changing. Uh, uh, now I learn more about uh, the culinary world uh, because uh, I've, got a, <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of chefs I work with, so I learn a lot more about cooking nowadays. So I, I keep learning something new, and I don't think uh, entrepreneurs should be limited by uh, what their current expertise is. They just need to be prepared to learn as much as they can, yeah. surround themselves with people with complementary skills, uh, and work as hard as possible. <laughs> Is it really true that you, you are the author of over, over 100 patents? Yeah, it's actually, uh, I think around 125, lost track. Uh, and the patents are in so many different topics. Uh, so some of the patents... Uh, other, other than salad making, I'm assuming. Yeah, so I've got a bunch of patents <laughs> Sunday on... Sunday making, yeah, go ahead. I've got a bunch of patents on writing, uh, on making uh, salads. I've got a bunch of patents on the memory system mm. of, uh, uh, of a memory card. And they're used in all iPhones right now. I've got patents on cooling uh, semiconductor chips. Uh, and once when uh, I was reviewing some of the patents my patent attorney wrote, I, I started thinking, uh, why am I spending uh, $500 an hour paying this patent attorney for writing my patent when, it's, when it can be automated? So I started uh, <laughs> developing software for automatically generating patents and reviewing them. Uh, and uh, I still have some patents on that. And uh, Really? So you brought the... I'm curious because yeah. I do know there's a huge amount of heat and light that goes into writing the patent claims and then filing the application and blah, 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 all the stuff associated with prosecuting a patent. So you developed a, pro a program for that? Yeah. And, and now you just push a button and there's your 126th patent. No, it's, it's not that easy. Uh, and uh, this was one project which... Uh, Never really went anywhere. Uh, so I started uh, writing the patent checking software. Mm -hmm. See, here again, if you try the simplest cases approach, before developing software which writes a patent, you need to develop software which checks a patent. And so the first software we developed in my previous company was we started writing something which checks a patent. And we did a pretty good job of that. And after that, I... I went to Rambus, uh, and so I don't know where they are where with that. Where that ended up, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, did you, so you, left, you left your day job to go form this company, or you just burned the candle at two ends and were putting in 20 hours a day? I mean, what was the transition that took you to launching Chowbotics? Yeah, it was a little bit crazy. Uh, uh, we, know, we know that already. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quit my job, so uh, I, I told the folks at Rambus that, hey, uh, I have this idea, I want to work on it, uh, and uh, I'm going to quit. Uh, and what they told me is, why don't you come in one day a week, we'll pay you half your old salary, uh, because our customers want to see you. Mm. And so I was doing that for a year or so, and uh, so that reduced my risk, uh, because at least I was getting yeah. some sort of paycheck. And, uh, and uh, at the end of the year, uh, I, I was so obsessed about... Uh, making the robot which made food. I was going into Rambus during the day. On my one day, I was working right. there. And I started thinking about food-making robots. And I, I, 
I felt it wasn't fair to Rambus for me to, you know, go there and uh, be obsessed about something else, not about the work I was doing there. And I told them, hey, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, stop this and just focus full time on uh, my venture. And they understood that. So you are the founder. There's no co-founder involved. No you, co-founder. you didn't have a cohort of of cone frayers who were working here. with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really? it was all me. And it was hard because uh, uh, in a robotics company, right, uh, you need a whole bunch of different disciplines to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an electrical engineer, but f- to build a good robotics company, you need, you need to have software expertise. You also need to have mechanical engineering expertise. You need to know how to write a business plan and get money from others. You need to know how to build up sales. And... Uh, it was not very easy at all because uh, okay. I, I had no mechanical yeah. engineering skills at all. Uh, and I didn't have much money, so I couldn't just hire someone to do it for me. So I had to learn how to uh, make things in a machine shop. And I made every single piece of uh, the Sally, uh, the first uh, prototype uh, uh, in, in my, with my own hands. Uh, it wasn't easy. Wow. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Deepak Saker, the founder and CEO of Chowbotics, and talking about his foray into this space, um, including uh, being the author of 125 patents. I'm just 126. Oh, 126. <laughs> duly noted. So for folks who are listening, the side of the robot, is this, you know, I would love something like this in our house or folks who maybe can't get around or not as mobile. So currently is Sally, the robot, the food maker, for example, the salad dispenser, you'd mentioned working with McDonald's or hospitals, you know, is it more of an institutional commercial kind of um, robot function or is it something that maybe eventually over time or maybe already now can be used in the home on the consumer level? Yeah, we're targeting it at cafeterias, office cafeterias. We're also targeting it at hotels, restaurants, Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Uh, the way I see this industry moving is I I see it going into homes in a few years, mm-hmm. not right now. And I, th- I think the parallels to the computer industry are striking. Uh, if you think about it, in the 60s, you had the supercomputers and mainframes. Or the ENIACs. <laughs> yeah, they were the room. size of a room, right? right? Uh, and just like that, there are f- food robots right now, available right now, in factories, which make frozen food. And mm-hmm. which make the kind of food, uh, the packaged food you get in grocery stores. Oh. So you get tortillas from a grocery store. Those were typically made by a robot in a factory somewhere. That's amazing. Uh, and so these ones, just like the early mainframes, they're the size of a room. They cost a lot of money. And you know how computers went, right? After that, you had the mini computers right. from DEC in the 70s and 80s. And the equivalent to that is the restaurant and cafeteria robots we are building right now. Oh, I see. So... Uh, our robots are smaller than the factory robots. They cost less. Just like the mini computers were smaller in size compared to the mainframes and they costed less. Mm-hmm. And you know what happened next with computers, right? You had the desktop uh, 10 smaller, years after smaller. the mini computer, which was even smaller and which was less expensive. And just like that, I see food robots uh, becoming smaller in size, becoming less expensive in the next 5 to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I foresee... Uh, Every single person having a food robot in their house at some point. It'll be like having a coffee maker, it sounds like. Yeah, but just, just to carry that, that um, construct forward, I mean, w- w- with Chowbotics, a current product that makes, you know, you have a, a refrigerator-sized machine mm-hmm. in a commercial setting. And I s- assume that inside the machine, inside the box, you have, as you say, 20 different ingredients. And so there's physical space that needs to be taken up by those. Right. And we're going to jump into supply chain right. management real quickly here. Um, but that that space can't... I mean, the, the machines don't make food. They they don't... They, they prepare, dispense it, They I dispense guess. it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, there is a form factor involved that has to accommodate the physical size of the ingredients of the dish that you're preparing, right? Yeah. So I think that's... I mean, that's probably going to be a governor on kind of the how small or at least how how uh, convenient they are to install this kind of a machine in your house. It do- doesn't fit under the cupboard like right. a, right. Like a so microwave. Maybe like a refrigerator or it, something. It needs a somewhat different philosophy for the home. Uh, if you think about Sally the salad robot, right, uh, you can make 50 salads out of a typical Sally. And when you are putting a Sally in office cafeteria, you need to feed 50 people or more. And that's one of the reasons why the machine is so big. Oh, okay. But if you think about how a home robot is going to look, you need to feed maximum of four people. Right. So you don't need so much space for holding the ingredients. Good point, yeah. The other thing a home robot needs, 
a home robot uh, uh, it it needs to be general purpose people don't want to eat salads every day right. <laughs> they don't or they don't want 50 different salads right. yeah right right uh, and so th- the home robot needs to be a general purpose one which can heat mm. food which can produce a wider variety of food and that's a slightly different design got it which yeah, is makes some, sense how do the ingredients for the salad stay fresh? Because you're mentioning about um, how hospitals are really interested because people aren't touching it. But what about within the dispenser itself? It's all refrigerated, so oh. it stays as fresh as it does in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. It's fresher than a salad bar. In a salad bar, many times you see the lettuce browning out yes. after a few hours. Mm. While with Sally, uh, it's all refrigerated, so it stays pretty fresh for a long, long time. So yeah. now, now is a good time to ask about supply chain management. How do you... How do you get these fresh ingredients, all 20 of them, h- how do you get them to the point of dis- dis- uh, of delivery to the customer? Right. Uh, we have partners. Uh, f- around 50% of offices in the U.S. are managed by four cafeteria management companies, Compass Group, Aramark, Sodexo, oh. and Guggenheimer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We work with all four of them. And what we do is we just sell them the robot. Uh, it's kind of like a pizza oven. You typically buy a pizza oven, right? Uh, right. And then you load food in, into it. So these four cafeteria management companies work with us. They get our robot, and they put the ingredients in every day in these offices. So they're kind of like a value-added reseller. Is that, is, are your customers the, the big food concessions like like Aramark? Or? Yeah, so uh, different, uh, different food management companies want to do d- things differently. Some of these uh, food management companies just want to buy the robot from us, and then they take all the money from the credit card swipes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a pretty good business for them. Uh, there are other uh, food management companies who uh, get their customers, which would be the Googles and Ubers of the world, uh, which have these robots in their cafeterias. They get those guys to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That uh, makes sense. What about, what about McDonald's? So go back mm-hmm. to your original concept where you bumped into the guy who was running the local McDonald's. He said, God, I want one of those things in my place. Mm-hmm. Are you also looking to chain restaurants as, as customers? Chain restaurants are a market, and so are convenience stores. Mm-hmm. We find convenience stores love us. Uh, We're working with six of the top 20 convenience stores right now. And the reason why they like us is they're losing tobacco revenue in a big way right now due to legislation. And they're looking to get more and more into fresh food Mm -hmm. to replace that lost revenue. And with convenience stores, they can't afford labor there. So robots pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, They want food 24-7 and robots don't sleep. Uh, They want to get into into fresh, healthy food as well. Uh, And Sally provides exactly that. Uh, and Sally provides customizable food. Uh, so it's a lot more exciting to people than those box salads where people don't get to choose what goes inside mm-hmm. their uh, salad. So we're seeing huge interest there, uh, and it's a pretty exciting market. So um, <clears throat> food management companies are – so regardless, I was going to frame the question as who is your target customer, but I think you've identified several categories of customers but the common link amongst all of them is the food management company. You need a, a, like an Aramark to drop in and actually ref, refresh and replenish the 20 items that drop into your salad composition. Is that right? Right. Uh, and that that's the case for places like office cafeterias, college campuses, hospitals. Uh, there are other markets like hotels where they have food service in-house and mm-hmm. those folks replace it. In restaurants, the restaurant owners... Uh, Put in the ingredients themselves. So different markets approach it differently. Yeah, so let me ask you on the ge- on the geographical front. Uh, do, you, do you live here in the Bay Area? You live here in San Francisco? Uh, I live in uh, Sunnyvale. Boy, so you did you did run into traffic coming up here. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you did. Brave soul. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, so where where did you first put a footprint down for Chowbotics? Where were your first installations? Were they here in the Bay Area? Yeah, they, uh, we put them close to our office. Uh, one of the first installations was Calafia Cafe. It's a restaurant oh. in Palo Alto. I know where it is, in town and country village. Yeah. yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, so our executive chef is Charlie Ayers, who set up the food program at Google. Mm. Before Google, uh, offices often had uh, shitty food, and Charlie changed all that, uh, uh, and uh, 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 Calafia Cafe is Charlie's restaurant, 
and we figured we should first uh, put the robot someplace where so, we have uh, a friendly face. Friendly right, venue. That's right, yeah. 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 <laughs> and what do they look like? I mean, if it, does it just look like a dispenser, like kind of how you see cereal dispensers and they you, you, you program what you want in your salad and they dispense it? Because you'd mentioned, you know, some people don't want to eat the same salad. So does the consumer at the restaurant get to dispense their own salad or is it they order it and it's the chef in the back room? No, uh, we actually have the consumer decide what goes into mm. the salad. The consumer walks up to a touch screen on Sally. Mm-hmm. and uh, they decide what goes in, into the salad, and then Sally automatically makes the salad right in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. <coughs> That's exciting. Um, step back a little bit. T- tell us a little bit, some metrics on the size of your company. So how many employees? Y- you're based in Sunnyvale. How many employees? Uh, when was the company formed? Uh, I assume you've got, uh, if you can talk, give some sense of how many installations you've got. I mean, just give us a sense of how mature the company right. is. Yeah, we've got uh, 25 employees. Um, They're located all across the world. Uh, We've got four in uh, China. We've got six in India. We've got one in Texas. Mm -hmm. We have around 16 or so in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't remember the exact number. Somewhere around 15 or 16. Yeah. So you're expanding in a way that's you're taking advantage of local markets. Is that you're trying to optimize for the market? Uh, we actually or for operational efficiencies, how are you thinking about yeah, that? Yeah, it, 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 it's not great to be split in so many different regions when you're this small. I don't like the fact that we are in so many different locations mm-hmm. because you spend so much time on communication. Right. And when you're a small company, every ounce of efficiency is very important. Uh, we, have, we were kind of forced into it because we do our manufacturing in China. And so we needed to have a few people close to our factory. This uh, is the physical machine. It's yeah, a okay. physical machine. And so we have a team in China, and that's working fantastically well. Uh, uh, the guys there are incredible. Then we, uh, in India, we have a software development team. And the reason why we looked at India for that is... Uh, because it's so hard to get uh, good talent in Silicon Valley now for software. We've heard this, yeah. yeah. A lot of demand. Uh, there's a lot of mm-hmm. demand, and uh, it, it turns out to be extremely expensive as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, that's why we set up our software team in India. That's working out quite well. And then we've got a team here in Red Oak City, which has uh, a bunch of engineers. We have our chefs here. We also have our marketing and sales folks here. What, what do you use chefs for? Uh, well, the chefs design the recipes. Uh, we find uh, we, we find we sell a lot more salads uh, if the chef designs better recipes and puts puts that uh, into Sally. Mm. And the other per- one one perk of having some of the best chefs in the country on the team is that uh, our team members get awesome food. Uh, I, I call <laughs> try my, the recipes, right? Yeah, I call my chef my chief happiness officer. She makes some great food, and our team members love that. So we're going to take a short break. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with Irene Yen. Our guest this hour is Deepak Sekar, who's the founder and CEO of Chowbotics. When the first product that Chowbotics has put out, there is a, a robot that makes salads. Yeah, Sally. Sally. That's right. You're listening to Bay Area Adventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures. We're still here, SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with Irina Yen, and our guest this hour is Deepak Sekar, who's the founder and CEO of Chowbotics, which does robotics for food delivery. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we kind of steer into your experience, Deepak, on the financing side of things, maybe we can step back a little bit. You can tell us kind of what your product roadmap might be. I mean, I can see... If you're starting with Sally, the salad-making robot, you know, where do you see your product roadmap going? Because you started with your Indian food. Yeah. Yes, please. I'll sign up for that, too. <laughs> at, home, to, at home to the chagrin of your wife. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, we've had requests to do so many different types of food uh, using Sally's technology. We think of uh, our robot as a food, uh, food robotics platform. If you think about it, instead of dispensing salad ingredients, if you put uh, uh, if if you put yogurt in there and different toppings for it, you can have a yogurt making robot. Uh, we've had others ask for a breakfast robot where you put different types of cereal and toppings in there. We've had others ask for uh, 
a soup making robot mm-hmm. where you have different uh, soup ingredients in there and making that a sushi robot and we've had others ask for a cocktail making robot so the same technology you you have in sally can be used for making many many types of food but each in each food category or each menu item you have to endow sally or whatever you name that machine with different capabilities refrigeration the capability to hold liquid um, the capability to heat, right. yeah, all these different things need to be built in. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. Uh, so, w- the capability to hold liquid and dispense liquid, we have that already because we dispense our salad dressing right now. Uh, with uh, heating elements, we've got a lot of IP on how to add the heating elements to it. So, we will be adding heating at some point of time. Uh, so it's not that hard. Uh, we have the patterns on making many, many types of food. If you think about it, when you go to a Chipotle today, mm-hmm. you got three people standing in line just putting toppings on your burrito. Mm-hmm. Instead of putting a salad bowl in there, if you put a tortilla in there, you can have all the ingredients of a burrito drop right in and someone can fold it. And there's so many other applications of this type of technology where you can have different types of bowls, uh, curry bowls and all uh, uh, dispense. So... Uh, it, it's pretty exciting for us. Uh, the way uh, I typically work is I, I I look at all the possibilities out there and I use my judgment to pick which one makes the most sense, which one is the simplest. And across and I, all food categories. Across all food categories. So we have something in mind which for our next product, which is going to come out sometime next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be a pretty interesting product. So, So what is it, again, kind of, Jumping into the mind of an entrepreneur who's out with his sleeves rolled up and doing it. Right now, you're totally focused on Sally, the salad-making robot. And at some point, you're going to make a jump and say, okay, we're going to do yogurt. What are the metrics that you have in mind that will signal to you that, okay, now it's time we're... We've got enough traction in one space. Now we're going to go out and try another space. How do you think about that in terms of making that jump? Yeah, the when you're a small startup, it's crucial to focus, right? Uh, because if if you don't get good revenue in your first product, it's very risky to go to the second product. And you're developing a brand as you go, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And so the way I would look at it is, uh, uh, I I try to find out when the risk for the first product has gone down to a low enough number that we can divert a significant uh, amount of resources into the second product. Uh, and I'm, I make these judgment calls uh, once every two months. I try I, once every two months. I sit down and ask myself: uh, Are we over the hump now? Is it uh, less risky to move on to the next product? Uh, and so far, the answer has been: uh, uh, It is too risky to move on to the next product. To what extent is that driven by customer demand? So you started <coughs> with sales because that was a pain point, I guess. But mm-hmm. where? I mean, to what extent, as you think of your product roadmap, is it driven by what you're hearing from your your customers and how you have to think about that in the context of to what you were saying before, you know, what's food agnostic, what's what's the, what what's compatible technologically speaking. It does sound, I mean, to Irina's point, it sounds like it's more it's like dead reckoning on your part as opposed to having a customer driven focus. Yeah, so if if I listen to my customer all the time, I would not be building a good company. Because my customers ask me to do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, and uh, the way I make decisions is I look at what the customer wants. That's a very important factor. Right. I also think about what's the least risk for, for our company from a technical perspective. And I use both these pieces of judgment to decide what to work on. Uh, and uh, my customers want me to make burgers. They want me to make pizzas. Uh, but those are very risky. Uh, uh, I would rather have something which is much easier from a technical standpoint. Uh, a lot of people think uh, uh, robots uh, never get sick, unlike humans. But uh, I like telling some of my customers, robots can get sick too, and they can mm-hmm. go down the complex pieces of equipment with uh, 400 or 500 parts. Uh, <coughs> so it's crucial for me that I pick a low-risk uh, uh, a low risk uh, product roadmap, mm-hmm. which makes sure uh, my investors' money is... Uh, 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 safe. <laughs> what about when you're making salads, even something as simple as a salad? Wh- wh- what are the the uh, regulatory requirements that you face? I assume it's not different or too different from what any restaurant has to do. You have to pass certain hygiene or 
I don't know even know what the words are, hygiene or cleanliness standards. And that's where a lot of our pa- IP and patents came from because you got a food safety, uh, uh, you got a f- you got f- food safety standards you got to meet. Mm-hmm. You got to make sure people <coughs> get safe food, and so you can't have sharp corners and food equipment. Uh, uh, you can't have uh, uh, something which is hard to clean, and that drove a lot of our design right from day one. So yeah, uh, it is not easy. Have you yeah. have you hit speed bumps in terms of? You know, passing passing the bar when the when the city hygiene inspector swings by and says, "What is this?" Uh, we <laughs> I actually believe in planning ahead. Uh, so we uh, I've heard this is a good yeah, thing to do. Yeah. yeah, we have been looking at food safety right from day one when we started the design. Uh, we work pretty closely with uh, this food safety body called the National Sanitation Foundation. And we showed them initial designs of our robot. And they said, hey, this is going to be challenging for food safety. You've got to change the design. And so we had to change the design. And we had to go through it multiple times before we settled on something they were happy with. And we we are finally bringing that to market. And that standard established by, what is it called, the food safety? It's it's the National Sanitation Foundation. But once you have that good housekeeping seal of approval, does that get you through a lot of the city requirements in terms of hygiene and food safety? Yep. Oh, that's great. Um, competition. So, you know, what are you seeing out there? Do you worry about competition or do you feel like this is a wide open field and let's get, let's get it right for the first product? We've got lots of time to do it. Uh, so uh, people often complain about how difficult hardware and robotics is, mm-hmm. but it's all, it also serves as a good barrier to entry. Uh, and there... This is a hot area. Food robotics is a hot area. And when you've got a hot area, you always have other people jump in later. And we did have other people jump in later. But what they're trying to do, because probably because they realize we are focused on salads and we have IP on it, they're trying to go after other types of food. So there's uh, one company trying to go after pizza. We have one company trying to go after burgers. Mm -hmm. And what those guys are doing is they're taking some of the robots people use in car manufacturing uh, trying to teach. <laughs> See, I was right. Teach I was right. right. And they're trying to teach those robots how to make food. How to flip burgers. And <laughs> the challenge with that is these robots used for making cars, they're enormous in size. Right. Uh, and not just that, they're pretty expensive as well. Uh, and they're not, good for fu- they're not good for food safety. You don't want to have right. tiny screws close to food uh, collecting uh, right. uh, bacteria and dust. And so... Uh, uh, w- the the approach of taking a robot from car manufacturing and using it for food, it's simple. It takes you less time to do it, but it leads to a bigger robot. It costs more money, and uh, it's not ideally suited for this application. So we've we've gone the hard route. We've we've built our own product from scratch just to go after salad. So it's pretty small in size. It costs a lot less than uh, uh, the competition, and uh, we are one of the first into market. Wow, so the first into market with this is exciting. Shift gears, yep. financing. So um, this is it's interesting. There are similarities with our previous guest who was talking about this is um, this is the company that has car rides for kids. Zoom, yeah, yeah, and uh, they have raised about the same amount of money you have, which is a little over five or six million bucks. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I have, I would have to say, I mean, Chowbotics does have a unique product. Sally the salad making robot how hard was it for you to go out there and raise money on that on that product how quick were they to get it or not how much of a sell was it for you yeah for me it was it was pretty interesting till I built my first prototype it was hard going Uh, once I built my first prototype uh, it became much easier because they couldn't visualize it or what was the barrier do you think with hardware products if you don't have a prototype mm-hmm. uh, it's very easy to go around with a powerpoint and ask for money right, right. Uh, it's much harder to build something real and right. show people that it works once i had my first prototype i used to call people to my office I, i'd make some food uh, for them <laughs> and once they ate from the food they were willing to invest right <laughs> and this trend repeated itself over and over again so we got into this accelerator called Techstars. right, right. Uh, and when we were there, we had one of our robots uh, uh, in the Techstars office, and we had a whole bunch of investors uh, walk in, and they would eat food from the robot, and they'd say, hey, I want to invest. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, uh, it, it, it was fun. Uh, and we got a lot of good investors for our seed round. We raised around uh, $1.3 million there. 
and it was oversubscribed. We had a lot more people wanting to put money than we could take in. Was it mostly institutional capital, or can you share? Was it more seed capital? What was the we composition? We had one. We had one angel group. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a couple of institutional investors, and we had some uh, individual investors as well awesome. back then. And uh, so we raised our seed uh, money, and uh, we were uh, building our product. And w- one evening, we had the CEO of TechStars, David Cohen. He visited our office uh, because he was traveling in Silicon Valley. And we and he was hungry. Yeah. He was hungry. <laughs> and we made some salads for him. And he said, hey, I want to invest in your Series A. And I told him, um, hey, uh, we are not raising our Series A right now. And he told us, uh, hey. Uh, Today uh, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said, uh, hey, it's going to help you accelerate if uh, you raise your Series A right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to invest in your Series A. Uh, who else do you want on your cap table? And I told him, hey, Foundry Group would be great because they've invested in a lot of hardware companies. Uh, they did Fitbit and Makerbot. And so he right. made a phone call to the guys at Foundry Group. And then within a week, uh, we met the folks at Foundry Group, and they said they're in as well. Wow. So I around uh, took like a week, two days. Uh, Boy, isn't that amazing. annoying when, yeah, when <laughs> investors force money on you? It's like, you have to take our money. Right. Well, I'm actually pretty happy because uh, both, <laughs> yeah. da- both David and uh, Jason from Foundry are great investors. We love working with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've, we've lucked out with our choice of investors. That's so, so Deepak, I want to ask you a question. Sure. So at the very beginning of the show, the first hour before you arrived, Irina and I were talking about the cost of starting up a company, and we were making the observation based on data that's out there that in 1995, you know, the startup cost for a raw startup company was about five million bucks. You had to build out the infrastructure for computers, the software. You get an office. You have to bring on employees and so forth. About five million bucks before you could even kind of get the wheels turning. And then today, that price is that cost has dropped down to about five thousand dollars because you've got open source software, you've got AWS, you've got SaaS, you've mm-hmm. got co-working spaces everywhere like accelerators like TechStars, and you've got this founder mentality of bootstrapping. So, you know, to get the company up with, you know, a prototype product and you know maybe some members of your management team in place, and you've got maybe even early stage customers, 5000 bucks. Now, that's the, that's the general average data. If, to put you on the spot, before you raise money, how much, how would, where would you peg that startup cost for Chowbotics? Uh, hardware companies take more money mm-hmm. because uh, you've got to pay for the physical hardware. For us, it was around $60,000, and it, uh, and that was a bootstrapped. I mean, you. you yeah, and that was my wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, sh- she made money of the VMware IPO. Why are we and talking to him? We should yeah. get his wife in here. Yeah, <laughs> she, she's the main reason why we've gotten this far because I had nothing but an idea. Mm-hmm. And she paid the bills at home and uh, uh, she. Uh, she put in the first 60K into our company. Wow. And that got you to a prototype product? Yeah. And a lot of investor interest? Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Deepak Saker, the founder and CEO of Chowbotics, Robots for Food Service, and we're talking about financing and how the company got started. So you mentioned we're talking about um, you raised about $6 million. And how mu- when, when was that? Was that a couple years ago? Was that recently? We raised the $5 million in February of 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when it closed. And uh, we raised $1.3 million in April of uh, 2016. Got it. Yeah. So how are you deploying the capital from the most recent raise? Are you trying to, is it more for the next idea on the product roadmap? Is it bringing more, you know, you, you had mentioned, we talked earlier about the range of engineers. It's lonely being the entrepreneur. And also from a skill set, you need a diversity of engineers from mechanical and otherwise. Right. Uh, we've used the money largely for building out the team. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we've got uh, now a pretty well-rounded uh, team. We've got uh, uh a few salespeople who've sold to restaurants and uh, offices before. We've got uh, chefs uh, who uh, design the recipes used in the robot. We've got engineers who've, uh, who who work on mechanical engineering, on software, on uh, electronics as well. So a lot of it has been on staffing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are these investors? I mean, often when um, companies... Um, don't we have investors invest in the companies? They bring, besides their capital, bring other kind of talent or um, 
advantages to the table. What have some of your investors been able to do? Like you had mentioned with Techstars, he placed a phone call to somebody at Foundry Group, and boom, it sounds like you know within a couple of weeks you were funded. What 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 other things have they done to help? Because not all of them are in the food space. Yeah, Techstars has been great for us because mm-hmm. Techstars has. Uh, programs all across the U.S. They have one program in New York. uh, They have one in Denver. They have one in L.A., one in Austin. And you did your program down in South Bay? I did mine actually in Austin. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, And uh, I think of Techstars as a giant network to help us sell machines Mm -hmm. because every Techstars managing director across the country is superbly connected within his or her city. So if I want to sell a few robots in New York, I contact the Techstars managing director in New York and they put me in touch with a dozen major customers in New wow. York. Uh, if I want to uh, sell to uh, uh, someone in Chicago, uh, I just contact the Techstars managing director in Chicago, and it wow. works out great. So uh, that's one that's one huge benefit for us out of Techstars. Techstars also helps with hiring. Uh, they've funded more than uh, 1,100 startups so far, okay. and... Uh, Many times we just recruit people from other <coughs> Techstar startups. If they're not, if the other Techstar startup is not doing well, then those folks sometimes reach out, reach out to us and say, "Hey, uh, can, can how about if we join your mission?" So that helps a lot. The other thing we've uh, had with investors is they've they've built many m- multiple companies before, and so m- many times if uh, they, they sit on your board, they sit on my board. Mm-hmm. And if if I hit some problem, they're some of the first few people I call. And there's some pattern recognition that can help you navigate. Right. Mm-hmm. For, uh, for example, they know what my blind spots are. Mm-hmm. And they tell me, hey, you got to hire for this particular skill. Mm-hmm. And that's great because it ha- stops me from making mistakes. Because if they can see I'm weak in some area and they ask me to hire in that area, it makes they the company much better. a lot of time and pain. Yeah. Yeah. Over the $6 million that you've raised so far, I mean, so where are you in your life stage right now? You mentioned you're, you know, you, you have an idea that you want to launch, you know, so stay tuned for the next product. So would you say you're at the scaling stage? Are you still like, you know, you're drilling down on the core product and then starting to, um, to expand beyond that? And, you know, maybe you'll need to bring in more capital to pursue that? Yeah, I th- I think uh, we should reach the scaling stage uh, Q1 of next year. Wow. Right now, uh, we've done the initial deployments, and uh, uh, we're just making sure everything's perfect before scaling. I want to shift back to you because you're the you're the long pole in this tent. You're the yeah. CEO of the company, and you've got how many employees? Uh, Twenty five. All over the world. Yep. <clears throat> so. And this is this is a far cry from sitting in your office and right. f- cranking out patents and filing those. So You're we're a global we're, company. We're, we're, we're <laughs> talking startup. about a completely different set of, of skills and requirements here. How has that gone for you? Um, I mean, y- you know, working at tech companies designing semiconductor chips is not 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 nearly the same as making hires and bringing them into the company and setting up manufacturing operations in China. Uh, yeah, for me. Uh, I've done engineering and marketing in my past. I'm always someone who liked learning about new things. So even uh, in my past, I'd started startups within bigger companies. And so I've had exposure to engineering and marketing. Uh, I hadn't done too much sales. Uh, And when I started this company, I was worried about how well I was going to be able to sell. But I've Which is a people skill, right? right. Yeah. And I, I've actually found surprisingly that uh, I'm pretty good at sales. So. Yeah. For you. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I guess people see the passion when the founder talks about it. Uh, and so I'm able to sell really, really well. Uh, and uh, that's worked out well. I do have some blind spots. And when I have blind spots, I have good people around me to hide those so, blind so spots. So what are your blind spots? So one blind spot I have is uh, accounting and finance. Uh, and I have a really good CFO uh, who uh, uh, was at Cisco before he uh, built uh, uh, he built the finance division for Jawbone. He was a CFO of Jawbone, oh, right. and so he he compliments me and uh, he makes sure all all those things are well taken care of. And I've been ramping up more and more. The way I work is when it's a new area. In the beginning, I ask silly questions. And then my questions get more and more dangerous. Just go deeper, yeah. And finally, uh, after three or four months of uh, entering a new topic, I'm I'm normally an expert at it. You go from you know BA to PhD within a, <laughs> a, a, a quick your study. Rhythm. Yeah, a quick, a quick study. study. But we only have a little bit of time left. What about hiring? Um, do you hire? Are you involved in the hiring process for the 
20 or so employees in the company? Yeah, I look at every single hire. Mm. I have a rule in the company that we'd hire only superstars. So I'm very picky about uh, any person we bring in. Mm-hmm. Uh, our hiring process, uh, uh, and I've learned this the hard way, is pretty rigorous. Uh, we first start off giving them a questionnaire. Uh, just to uh, and the questionnaire probes them on different aspects of their personality, why they want to work in a startup, right. uh, uh, what uh, what their motivations uh, for their career are, and things like that. Is that for just a cultural fit, or just you're curious? You just want to know who this person is. It's it's or both, both. Uh, yeah. uh, and it's amazing. Uh, th- that's what really matters. Uh, if someone's motivated enough uh, and they have the right mindset. Uh, so they can do smarts. great. That's yeah, right. they can do great things. Uh, uh, and after that, we have an all-day uh, interview. They first come in, and then they give a presentation on their past work. And then we got a bunch of people uh, asking them questions about different aspects of their past work. Mm. Uh, you do a case study. That'd be pretty intimidating, huh? <laughs> so say we want to make a turkey turkey chili. Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you, and so we typically <coughs> give them great food as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So the lunch is an important part of Chowbotics. We have our chefs cook up some great food. They get excited seeing the great food, and they want to come and work there because they get that great food you're every day. You're a great day. salesman, so you're, you're working on the clothes. So people are, who are listening in are wondering, you know, what does it take to be the CEO of a startup in, a, in frankly, a pretty open field, pretty new field? Mm-hmm. So how do you respond to that? If there's If there are one or two essential qualities – that it takes not just to launch a company, but to grow with it and scale it. You know, we've got about a minute left. How would you respond to that? As, you, as you introspect and think, okay, what, have, what do I bring to the table that makes this company work? I think the number one skill you need is what I call grit. Mm-hmm. You've got many ups and downs, and you've got to be able to uh, survive the down cycles and thrive. Uh, the other skill I think <coughs> you need is constant learning. Uh, because not everyone has all the skills needed to run a company. And you n- just need to keep learning all the time and getting better and better. And I think that's crucial. But you can't be you can't be chief cook and bottle washer forever. You have to be able to delegate too. I mean, how do you think about delegation as your company grows? The way I work is uh, when I bring someone in, I give them some tasks. I see how they do in those tasks. And they build up trust with me. And if I see over the first two months they're doing great things and they can run things by themselves, they get more and more responsibility until I eventually give off, give off the whole department to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you need to have superstars around you whom you can delegate a lot of the work to. Otherwise, you can't scale the company. Deepak, as we promised, we would run out of time before we had exhausted the subject. Right. We are delighted to have you on fast. board. Thank you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. So you can learn more about Chowbotics on their website, chowbotics.com. Yep. And it's Chowbotics, C-H-O-W-B-O-T-I-C-S.com. And thanks to everybody for joining us. If you've got a question about something you've heard on today's show, uh, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. As a reminder, we air live optimally for your commute hour, live every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, on SiriusXM's Business Radio Channel 111. Thanks again to Ritu Narayan, the co-founder and CEO of Zoom. And thanks also to Deepak Sekar, the founder and CEO of Chowbotics. Both of these guys commuted in terrible traffic. Thanks also Thank to our producer, Dana Cash. Assistant producer this week is Nicole Grigg. And our engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Doug Collum with Irina Yen. You've been listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.